All right, welcome to another episode of Peak Health Unlocked. I am one of your hosts, Mark Champagne, alongside Dr. Rhett Langley and Dr. Philip Gallegos. We interview experts discussing the latest science, technology, and wellness practices to help unlock your peak health. Make sure to stick around at the end of the episode where we have a deep dive and talk about the most interesting topics from the interview. And this podcast would not be possible without the support of Thrive Performance and Regenerative Medicine, a team prepared to go all in with you to craft your personalized peak health plan. Visit the link in the show notes for a range of services. Thanks for being here and have a thriving day. Today, we are speaking with Kara Collier, who is a registered dietitian with a background in clinical nutrition and nutrition technology. She is the director of nutrition at NutriSense and is on a mission to leverage technology and data to prevent disease and improve health span. The question that everyone's been getting is just, you know, what for you personally, what does longevity mean to you? Yeah, longevity to me is a life without unnecessary suffering. Um, Coming from working in traditional healthcare system, I was a clinical dietitian in hospitals, working primarily in ICUs, so dealing with a lot of people who are critically ill. And you see that so much of those last years of your lives are dealt in suffering, unnecessary suffering. So most of the people coming into the ICU were complications of lifestyle-related chronic diseases. So after working in the hospitals for years and getting super frustrated with this experience, I knew that there had to be other ways. Um, You have to be able to somehow prevent these diseases and not have this huge time gap, 20 years of the end of your life where you're in suffering, you're not able to do the things you love to do, your social connections are dwindling, Um, you're taking lots of medications, immobile, all of these things that were so commonplace, it just seemed um, so silly and unnecessary amount of suffering. So longevity to me is really taking your health in your own hands early on so that we don't have to end up in that circumstance, which is unfortunately the case for most Americans. That's the general um, path that most people follow, but I don't think it's the path we have to follow. I absolutely don't think that that is just a part of life. Um, I think we we have to take action early on, though, to avoid that. That's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. How do you um, view metabolic health or glucose management as a strategy for longevity? Yeah, definitely. So a majority of these chronic conditions um, that we're seeing, you know, diabetes, obviously, but also cardiovascular disease, dementia, cancer, a lot of these chronic conditions have dysfunctional metabolism involved. So glucose is usually involved in, in most of these diseases that people are facing. So if you think about like what is metabolism, it's just this full range of biochemical processes that are either to produce or store energy to power the body, right? So when we're talking about what is good metabolic health, it's just the health of these cellular functions, a normal balance of these processes. And glucose is really related at the heart of this. It's not just um, you have abnormal glucose values if you eat a lot of carbs or if you have diabetes. Everybody has glucose in their system at all times, and the body works super, super hard to keep it in this tight, physiological, normal range. And so when you're monitoring glucose, you can see what is pushing it to deviate from that norm. Um, If it's going too high or too low, that is a signal that um, homeostasis is is not going well. You know, we're pushing the body out of its normal functions, not being able to self-regulate very well. Um, So when these metabolic processes are running well and we're generating the right amount of energy, then we don't have um, excessive harmful byproducts. So we could dive into kind of the consequences of hyperglycemia that are not just diabetes, but a lot of times you're having oxidative stress or inflammation or mitochondrial dysfunction, and all of these drive these chronic conditions. So being able to see what your glucose is doing, not just in a fasted state, but 24-7 can give you a really good indication of if that 
if your body is in that normal range and then what might be driving it to be high or low and, and how we can fix that before it becomes an actual clinical problem. Yeah, I was going to say, Kara, that when I t- t- first tell people about the CGM, the first thing that they say is, okay, well, that's cool. You can check your glucose and prevent diabetes. But I think that that's my first answer is to try to show them that this is not just a device to help you look at blood sugar and diabetes, that there's so many other things related to it, um, you know, that can help with their overall health. Yeah, absolutely. So I always um, equate glucose as the newest vital sign because it gives you insight into not only your dietary choices, not just carbs either, all types of dietary choices, but also um, your meal frequency, your exercise, your sleep, your stress, all of these tenets of basic good health are affected. Glucose is affected by them. So you get a poor night of sleep, your glucose is going to be higher the next day. So it gives you insight into, into all these different facets of health, which you know we have to address each of those equally if we want to have... A, long, you know, longevity, if we want to have good health span and a meaningful life, you can't just be looking at diet and get hyper focused, we have to be looking at all of these pillars, because they're equally important. I love that. And for our listeners, so Rhett used the the term CGM, and that's continuous glucose monitor. Can you kind of define what a continuous glucose monitor is, so our listeners are uh, understand what, what we're speaking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, it's um, exactly what it sounds like in the fact that it is continuously measuring your glucose. So normally, um, you might only know what's happening with your glucose or metabolic health if you get like, a fasting glucose value from a lab or a hemoglobin A1C. And that's telling you, you know, fasting is just giving you a snapshot into what's happening when you're fasted. And then A1C is just giving you an average of your glucose. So it's not telling you all the in-betweens, all the variability, all the nuances involved, but a CGM can do that for you. So it's technically a medical device and it does need a prescription. Um, at NutriSense, we take care of that for you because that can be really difficult to obtain for many people, especially non-diabetics. And there are a few different brands. Um, we use the Abbott Freestyle Libre. And it just looks like a little disc and it goes on the back of your arm near your tricep. And it's really easy to insert. You just do it at home. Um, I kind of describe it as an easy button because you just literally like push it in and it's there and it stays on for 14 days. And then for two weeks, you just scan your phone to get the glucose data onto your, we use an app onto the app, and then you can see what's happening 24 seven. Um, and so that's, that's really insightful because you can get all these nuances. You can see what's happening while you're sleeping. You can see the exact postprandial glucose response to a meal and not just, um, you know, if you have a glucose meter at home and you're checking it two hours after, you might not know exactly what happened in that two hours, but you can get all those nuances when you're measuring it continuously without any blood, fortunately, as opposed to a glucose meter. What surprised you since starting this work, you know, just it just seeing this this kind of data come in? Has has anything just stood yeah. out at you that you <laughs> that you A lot expected? of things. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things. Um when we started this, you know, there's not a lot of research on what should optimal glucose values be for a non-diabetic. Um, most research that's utilizing continuous glucose monitors is done on, on diabetics because that's usually the use case. But, you know, we're trying to use this on non-diabetics to prevent diabetes. So there's this huge gap in the literature. So there were tons of surprises and we've learned a lot. Now that I've seen thousands of people with their data 24-7, you get a good idea of what is normal and what is not normal. Um, a lot of things that surprised me was just some, some universal truths that came out. One big one is just um, when you're eating. So the timing of your meal can matter just as much as the content of your meal. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have experienced this, but almost everybody will have a higher glucose response and a larger area under the curve if you eat a meal later at night rather than if you ate that meal at the same time during the day. Um, So this is, you know, along the lines of chronobiology, where we are eating within our circadian rhythm, Um, shifting. A lot of people who are doing intermittent fasting, which I'm a huge proponent of, will kind of shift their meals to the end of the day because it's easier. It's usually easier for people to fast all day and then 
be eating maybe between like, you know, 2 and 10 p.m. But we're seeing much higher glucose values all night long. And then that's those dinner meals if they're really late at night. So that's sort of like a universal truth that I've seen over and over. Um, another big one is just gender differences, which is not well documented, um, but some things became pretty apparent after you see enough people, specifically around fasting. So, you know, when we, we started, there were a lot of people who were um, vocal about saying concerns about women fasting, um, especially premenopausal and if this is detrimental or if we should be concerned about it. So we were super conservative when we first started out about our recommendations specifically for women of just fast, not avoiding fasting for longer than 12 hours because we weren't really sure. Um, but then as we saw more and more people and collected more and more data, um, some patterns became obvious that doing like a 16-8 for a woman seems pretty much universally okay. We're not seeing a lot of detrimental effects from that. But when we start shortening that window even smaller, so specifically OMAD, one meal a day and extended fast, um, for a subset of women, we do start to see detrimental effects. So um, to explain that further, usually it is the women who are already in normal weight, maybe already undergoing a lot of psychological stress, um, and they're pushing this fasting, and, and you should start to see glucose decrease as you're fasting, right? So if we're at 24 hours into a fast and your glucose is climbing, I mean, it's going from 100 to 110, 120, and you're not exercising or doing anything else that should be rising it, that is a signal to me that your body's under a little bit too much stress. And we started to see that pattern um, with women, specifically, you know, lower body fat percentage, um, healthy weight, who are doing like four day fast and their glucose is just climbing each day. So, but we never saw that in men. So that's just kind of a gender difference that we, it started to become pretty apparent that that was a trend. So that's something we look for now. And and it's one of those things where it's like, if you want to try fast, like, let's try it and let's see what your glucose does. And we can kind of decide then maybe that long of a fast isn't what your body needs right now. Um, so it's sort of like a prerequisite for longer fasting women now, you know, we're going to make sure that you're not underweight. We're going to check what your body fat percentage is beforehand. Um, if it's less than 15%, we may not want to do it for too long. Um, if you're under, under a lot of stress for whatever reason or some sort of illness, infection, chronic inflammation, probably want to hold back as well. But that's that was a big surprise for me. I, I wasn't sure how it was going to play out, but I feel much more comfortable about just like daily intermittent fasting, recommending that for just about everyone. There's always nuances to that as well, but that was sort of a long answer. No, that was great. <laughs> I know speaking for myself, and I know Rhett's experienced this as well, that um, when you do eat late, we've had some, like where we've had business dinners and we go out and eat late, and then you go to sleep, you put your aura ring on, you're, uh, the area under the curve, you have that sugar, elevated uh, glucose levels throughout the night, your temperature is elevated, and then your heart rate variability is jacked up. So it definitely was an eye-opener because you already know, you've always heard, oh, it's bad to eat really late, but then you see the data right in your face and you're like, oh, okay. And then you, you don't feel as well the next day and you, your score is really low for your readiness score. So it was it's interesting to see that real-time data. Yeah, absolutely. It was very eye-opening for me as well. And now I'm I'm much more cognizant of that effect. I think, you know, whenever you have data to back it up, it drives behavior change better. Um, you know, when you know exactly what is happening in your body, as opposed to listening to vague advice, you're more likely to follow through and it's more likely to be meaningful, which is part of the reason like having that real time feedback is so important. Um, and it's also like, we're all super unique. Like that's probably another big insight is just how different people can respond to the same exact foods. Um, even just within the nutrition team, you know, all the dietitians are, are fairly similar in um, physical activity level, generally healthy, no signs of insulin resistance, but we all test, you know, similar foods to see how it goes. And we all respond so differently, especially with different um, like fruit and starchy vegetables. Like I have huge glucose spikes to sweet potatoes, no matter what I do. And any, like I could eat it after a heavy workout, 
Um, after a good night of sleep, it doesn't matter. Sweet potatoes are always going to give me a glucose spike, but then a different dietitian on our team, you know, barely has any increase at all. Like we are all unique at the end of the day. It's a unique compilation of epigenetics and microbiome. And we have these unique responses to food. So that's always interesting to see as well. Yeah. So Kara, I wanted to touch on a, a few things that I think are important to our listeners. And I think for, you know, the person that may be trying the CGM for the first time and I'll close the loop on what you said earlier. I think their conventional medicine practices sick care. So there's definitely a gap or a lack of knowledge in blood glucose in non-diabetics. Right. So, and then I'll be the first to say that my, my, um, education was lacking in it as well, which is why I wanted to get my hands on the device and look at the data. Funny story, when we first got our hands on the CGM, Philip and I had decided to test out the carnivore diet. So we've been on the carnivore diet for, I don't know, maybe a week, a couple days. And, you know, we don't have to go into it, but in a nutshell, you know, when you're on the carnivore diet, there's not a lot of things you might, that might be the diet that would be causing your blood glucose to spike. So when we put the CGM on, my uh, blood glucose area under the curve looked amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we went off the carnivore diet and I started, you know, having introducing carbs, banana, uh, fruits, you know, everything under the sun to see what would happen. Of course, I started getting these spikes and I was terrified because I had seen my blood glucose be amazing and then it went to spike after spike, but obviously came down appropriately. So I want you to touch on you know, absolute blood glucose value versus mean average, all that kind of stuff. Because I know when some people see this, they're like me, they want, after they see this nice flat line, they want it to be perfect. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily bad if you have carbs and your blood sugar spikes. Yes, 100%. Um, Having a glucose increase after consuming carbohydrates, which get broken down into glucose is completely normal. So I could definitely dive into like what are optimal trends to look for. But I do like to make that super clear to people because people who are looking for optimal health, they do get freaked out if it moves at all. But we don't have to have completely static glucose levels to have good optimal health. So there's sort of three trends we're looking at. Um, The first is like our fasting glucose values once we've been fasting for at least like eight hours. The second is your maximum glucose value, so how high you spike. And then the third is glycemic variability or what that spike looks like, your area under the curve with your responses. So for the first um, fasting glucose, traditionally, you know, anything below 100 would be considered normal. But we look for fasting glucose values between 70 and 90. Um, once you start getting above 90, it seems to be an independent risk factor for, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, insulin resistance. So we're really looking for it to be below 90. So that's the first metric we're looking at. And then the second is that maximum glucose value. So this is something where it is a bit of a area in the research that is still up for debate. Um, Neither American Diabetes Association or World Health Organization recognizes your maximum glucose value as a meaningful metric. Um, If you do like a oral glucose tolerance test where they give you a bunch of sugar and they check your glucose throughout, they're only monitoring your two-hour postprandial mark as something that is meaningful. So at two hours after eating 75 grams of glucose, they want it to be less than 140. So that is the traditional measurement, but we are looking for a maximum glucose value below 140 at any time, not just at that two-hour mark. So there, we, we have this because there is some research that's showing um, glucose values in non-diabetics who don't have any sign of um, any abnormal risk factors, not overweight. And when you start reaching those glucose values above 140, that's when you start to see an increased risk of diabetes um, and insulin resistance. So it's not that one spike above 140 is going to cause you to have insulin resistance and diabetes. It's, it's about repetition, right? We want to avoid repeated exposure above that threshold. And that's also a threshold where we start to see increased oxidative stress um, and pressure on the mitochondria to work in overdrive to deal with the glucose load and also potentially cardiovascular damage. So um, endothelial tissue damage, oxidative stress, et cetera. So we're looking at avoiding repeated exposure over 140. 
And we really don't want to see it much higher than 160 in general. So really avoiding that. There is maybe one or two research studies that show that we want to avoid a maximum glucose value above 120. So I'm not convinced from the research that is available that we all need to strive for glucose values below 120 all of the time. I think that is potentially overly strict. Um, most people only spend about five minutes above that 120 to 150 range. So if you're spending a lot of time above 120, that would be a little different than if you have a quick spike that comes back down to normal um, and hits 140. And then, you know, within 10 minutes, you're back down to 120. I am not concerned about that. I don't have any evidence to believe that that is going to cause long-term damage. So that is the maximum value. And then finally, we want to look at just what the shape of your glucose response looks like. So this would be considered glycemic variability or the swings in your glucose. And this is really a leading predictor for cardiovascular disease risk specifically. Um, so we have in our app, we use standard deviation as a proxy for your glycemic variability. Um, after seeing lots of people's data, we it's very common to have a standard deviation below 20 for non-diabetics. So that's sort of like an upper threshold of what would be considered okay. And then below 14 would be considered really optimal. Um, and so if you're looking at the actual glucose response, we want to see at that two hour mark, not just less than 140, like who or ADA says, but we want to see it back to pre-meal glucose values. So let's say before you ate something um, you were at 90 and then you spike up to 135 within the first 30 minutes. And then by one hour mark, you're back down to 90. That would be a very normal, healthy glycemic response to a carbohydrate containing meal. That would not be concerning to me at all. Um, if you slowly climb up to 120, but then stay at 120 for three hours, even though your maximum was much lower, that's a big area under the curve. That is something I would not want to see. Um, alternatively, if you spike up to 190 and then you come back down to 90 within 30 minutes, even though it's a smaller end of the curve, it's still a very high maximum glucose value. That would be another trend I would want to avoid seeing very often. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So can you touch on, I know this is another favorite uh, topic of yours, is is the difference between following these trends and say the average person goes to their doctor and, and they get a hemoglobin A1C and they say, well, my hemoglobin A1C is normal, so I'm doing just fine. My, my metabolic health is, is good. Can you uh, touch on that? Yeah, hemoglobin A1C has a lot of flaws. Um, yeah, as you've probably heard me say before, I, I hate this lab test, especially when some of our customers are wearing CGMs and then they're still concerned about their A1C. So if you think about just inherently what is an A1C measuring, it's, it's measuring your average glucose values over three months. And so just by measuring an average, you're missing all that variability, right? You could be spiking up to 183 times a day, but have an average glucose value that is good because you're, you're coming down low afterwards. Or, you know, you could be perfectly mild glycemic variability and also have a good average. So average doesn't tell us anything about your maximum glucose value or your glycemic variability, which are the two trends that are most correlated with overall health. Um, and then it's also just a generally unreliable test. So it is making the assumption that your red blood cell lives for 90 days because that is what it is measuring. Um, average red blood cell does live for 90 days, but there are a lot of cases where it does not, such as anemia, which is extremely common. Um, smoking, relatively common as well. Even just hyperglycemia can lower your red blood cell life. So it can produce either you know, false positives, false negatives, and in general, the test misses a lot of positives that would then be identified on either an oral glucose tolerance test or um, with CGM monitoring. And it, you know, research shows that it only has about 40 to 60% sensitivity to truly identifying glycemic control when compared to using a CGM or an oral glucose tolerance test. So, Overall, um, it just has so many flaws that it's not a great metric to monitor for very specific reasons. I think it has a use case if, you know, if you get an A1C back of 10%, that is a red flag that it is way too high. Um, 
if you get an A1C back of 5.1 and someone's like, oh, should I be concerned about this? That doesn't really tell me that much. If, you know, if you're a diabetic and it started at 10 and then you made a bunch of lifestyle changes and it comes down to seven, that's still meaningful. We know that, you know, you're tracking your own progress and your A1C decreased, but it's, it's not meaningful to me if somebody is in, you know, maybe in just a pre-diabetic range or in the high normal range. What I really want to see is, is more data, CGM data, or even just if you have a glucose meter at home, it's probably more insightful than an A1C is going to be. Right, right. This is super fascinating. Thank you for, for all the details. I would love for you to touch on stress. I've, I've heard you speak about it. You've mentioned it a couple times now in relation to glucose levels and, and the effects. And, and I know you've talked about in the past just different stress management techniques. So maybe it just to educate us on the link and also what people can do to lower stress, especially now given uh, we're all pretty heightened in that level or in that area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, stress and glucose are super, super correlated. So we think about just a normal stress response. Um, we have, you know, let's say you're in a fight with your roommate or you're in a traffic jam, you're going to have an acute increase in cortisol and adrenaline. And this is going to stimulate gluconeogenesis. So this is the creation of new glucose and also glycogenolysis. So this is breaking down of our glycogen stores where you know, our glucose is stored in the liver and the muscles. So basically it's going to increase glucose levels, but then we're also going to reduce our insulin sensitivity so that glucose levels stay high to deal with the stressor. So normally this is um, an appropriate acute stress response. We want a little extra energy to deal with whatever stress is going on. Um, sometimes in our modern environment, we don't actually need extra energy to deal with the stress that's going on, even in an acute setting. You know, if you get an alarming email from your boss, I don't really need extra glucose to deal with that, but my body is still going to stimulate that natural stress response. Um, but what really gets, becomes a problem is chronic stress. So this is going to equal to constantly elevated glucose levels and decrease insulin sensitivity. And so we see this a lot with elevated fasting glucose values in the morning. So usually, you know, if, if your nutrition is dialed in, if your exercise is dialed in, but you're still having these really high fasting glucose values, the first thing I'm going to ask somebody is about their stress, because usually it's an indication of elevated cortisol levels and driving that process of endogenous glucose production. So it's an issue we're seeing all of the time. Um, we're living in a very high stress environment. And I think people have difficulty um, quantifying the effect stress is having on them or even acknowledging the impact stress is having. So a lot of times, you know, if we just directly ask someone, well, your fasting glucose is high, are you stressed? A lot of people will be like, no, I'm not stressed. I'm just, you know, working a lot and, kids are at home and I'm never going outside and I'm only sleeping five hours a day. And I was like, that sounds like stress to me. So I think a lot of people don't even recognize it for what it is, which is why having this data and or ring data, any sort of heart rate, heart rate variability is super useful because it can quantify um, the intangible, which is the first step. You know, first step is always awareness. You have to identify that you're even stressed to deal with it. So first it's about bringing attention to this issue. And then it's, what do we do about it from there? So stress management techniques, it really depends on the person and their personality. Um, I'm all about personalized recommendations. And for some people, something like meditation is going to be really helpful. Um, but it's similar to exercise, it takes some time to build it into a habit before something like meditation is something people can do consistently. So for some people who are very disciplined, um, have no issue incorporating new habits, that could be a great technique for them. For other people, we might have to make more simple, um, simple interventions. So one I use a lot is just breathing techniques. I love the 478, which is just breathing in for four seconds, holding it for seven seconds and breathing out for eight seconds. Um, this can stimulate the nervous system to literally relax yourself. So that's an easy one that many people, it's like, oh, I'm having a moment where I'm feeling stressed. I'm going to do these breathing techniques. And it seems much 
easier than something like sitting down and meditating for 30 minutes. Um, another thing we teach people is just being able to recognize what stress feels like in the moment. So I'm constantly telling people to recognize their physical trigger points that bring tension when we're stressed. So when we're stressed, we physically show it. So paying attention, doing a quick scan of your face, your chest and your belly, you'll probably feel that they feel tight. And then just like physically imagining loosening your face, loosening your chest, and then letting your belly out a little bit and just like relaxing can cause people to just stimulate that relaxation. And, and that's something that can take 30 seconds, but make a meaningful impact if we just keep doing that each day and have that into our routine. So those are some of the um, things we work on usually initially. A lot of times also we're talking about getting some sunlight, going outside, um, taking 10 minutes in the morning while your coffee is brewing to just stand outside in the sun. So getting some outdoor exposure can help decrease these stress levels. That's an easy one for many people. Love it. That was super insightful and just loaded full of, of practical tips. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Kara, I, I, um, while we're on the subject, I feel like we really, I really need to nail this home because I am really excited about what you guys are doing there. And I know you're proud, um, but we spend a lot of this time not, you know, talking about other things outside of glucose and, I was talking to one of our clients the other day and he asked me the question after I was emphatically explaining him all the stuff we do at Thrive. He said, you know, you have all these labs and this glucose monitored and, you know, how do you guys handle all the data? And basically at the end of my conversation, I told him, I was like, look, data is only helpful if we can get you to change your behavior. And so I just want to step back out and talk about the app because I think the app's really cool. So if you think about the, the person that puts the CGM in they have to scan the ECGM with their phone and then of course you're looking at your blood glucose and you start to see changes in that and the app and obviously just expand on this but the app not only tracks blood glucose but it tracks it connects the oral ring it connects with the uh, iPhone iWatch and you can add uh, in the future uh, correct me if I'm wrong you're going to be able to add stress levels um, all sorts of other metrics and the way that looks on the practitioner side is um, I think it trains the patient to not only use the app, but it allows us to be the ultimate health coach. You know, whether you're physician, dietitian, whatever part of the team you are, mental fitness coach, but it gets that person to actually look at their behavior and hopefully change it. 100%. Yeah. I'm all about data-driven behavior change just because, you know, my experience before working in traditional uh, dietitian setting, you know, you can tell people what they're supposed to do, you know, until you're blue in the face. But if they don't have some sort of intrinsic motivation to do it, nothing's going to happen. And I think data really helps drive that intrinsic motivation for a lot of people. But I 100% agree that, you know, data is still just data, like you have to be able to connect it and make sense of it, which is why, you know, just like you have health coaches, and you guys are looking at the data for your patients, we include the dietitian as part of our service, because we don't want it to just be a bunch of data without any sort of signal or interpretation or ability to, you know, put it together and make something actionable out of it. So a lot of wearables or devices, it's just data, and then it's up to you to figure out what to do with it. So that's why we include the dietitian service in that, because we think it's really important to make sure you know people are understanding it correctly and making the right changes based off of that data. And sometimes you just need some encouragement or some help along the way, too. Everyone's different. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, it's, I, to me, it's a level up because... You know, my personal experience, when I saw my blood glucose change, I remembered like, oh, I have to log the food that I ate. And I know that other apps where maybe you're just logging your macros, there's not a ton of incentive, especially if you, no one has eyes on. So that is really important for behavior change on the back end. Right. Absolutely agree. What about, I'd love to know about some of the extremes. You, you know, you have people that I imagine that are just just naive into in, into this whole setup like they're just getting started but then you have other extremes of like full-on biohackers and all of that like monitoring everywhere i'm curious like 
what are where's the overlap i guess in, in those extremes or what what can we learn from uh those those two bookends essentially yeah like are, are you asking what um habits from the extreme examples might be applicable to everyone yeah exactly like you know not starting with like the iron man training uh <laughs> when you you right. never run a, a mile in your life type thing i'm curious what the overlap might be yeah 100 percent. so i have some like golden rules is what I call them, where it's just like 80-20 rule. You know, if you do a couple of these things, you're going to be pretty well off, you know, much better than most people. And my number one rule with nutrition is just, it's super simple, but just eat real food. Like the quality of your food and whole foods matter more than your macronutrient composition than, you know, if you're doing cyclical keto, if you're doing carnivore, the quality of your food really, really matters. So eating the least processed version of food you can find and making it high quality food. So spend time actually thinking about what you're putting in your body. And then, you know, another big one, like we talked about earlier, is that earlier time-restricted eating window. So I think almost everyone can benefit from intermittent fasting and it's fairly simple for most people to do, especially now that almost everybody is working from home. I think that's actually um, a positive change that will come out of all of the craziness lately is that more people are now working remotely and they have more autonomy over their schedule and how they live their lives, which I think it can be much easier than for people to eat when they actually want to eat and cut that eating window off earlier when before if you got home at seven and then you had to you know pick up your kids and do something, you might not be eating dinner until 9 p.m. and there was nothing else you could do about it. So if possible, that earlier time-restricted eating window um, is a good golden rule for everyone. And then related to exercise, you know, we haven't touched on it much, but you can't out-exercise a bad diet, but a lot of times I am seeing where people are so honed in on what they should eat. They want to know exactly what they should eat, what foods are good for them, what foods are bad for them, and they totally neglect the importance of physical activity. Um, we all have to eat, so it's easier to control our food because no matter what, I'm going to have to eat something, so I might as well make it optimal. But we don't technically have to exercise. We should all exercise, but I think it's something that people are more likely, oh, I don't have the time for that, or they don't prioritize it. But the best glucose data I see, the healthiest people I see, they all are exercising regularly. This doesn't mean you have to be doing an Ironman. This doesn't mean you have to be competing in CrossFit. Um, just doing some basic strength training and frequent movement throughout the day um, is equally important. So there's a lot of research, research that shows it doesn't really matter what type of exercise you're doing, although I am partially biased to strength training, but any type of exercise has really impressive benefits on metabolic health and glucose regulation. Um, you know, I think a big unfortunate mistake with exercise is that so many people view it as a weight loss tool. I think that's such a disservice to what exercise benefits us in our life. So, you know, people are like, I need to go to the gym and be on the elliptical for an hour to burn off the cookies I ate last night. And I try to reframe the benefits of exercise in people's minds because I don't want you to be thinking it's something to burn calories because it's so much more than that. Um, exercise is really, really uniquely helps our metabolic health. So it really increases our insulin sensitivity. Um, most of our glycogen storage, so that, that glucose storage form is in our skeletal muscles. So the more we're using our muscles, the more resistance training we're doing, the more glycogen storage space we have. And then also any type of exercise, you know, whatever you like doing, even going on a brisk walk, will increase our GLUT4 transporter. So you'll be able to take more glucose out of your circulation and, and get it out of the circulation and where it needs to go for energy or for storage so that it's not these high glucose levels in your blood instead, which can be toxic if they're too high. Glucotoxicity, this damage that we're doing to our blood vessels. So all of these factors, you know, whenever I go to the gym, um, 
I'm really into strength training and I'm always thinking of it as like, I'm increasing my insulin sensitivity, like trying to reframe, like why we're exercising. Like, that's like what I think when I'm just like not feeling it, I'm like, no, I need to like get my daily insulin sensitivity in today. Like I have to go. Um, reframing as it doesn't feel like this punishment for something you ate, I think is important. So that was probably a little bit more than you needed to know about that. But no, that was, that was, that was perfect. No, 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 that was great. We need to know everything. Yeah, no, actually <laughs> a lot more questions that hopefully we'll be able to touch on. But um, one of the things is you, you, you spoke about it briefly and, and Rhett was talking about it, but uh, can you touch briefly on combinations of food? Because that's been the biggest eye-opener for me or the, the cool experimental part of this is combining carbs with fat, combining carbs with protein, different combinations and see how they either positively or negatively affect how uh, the, the glucose is metabolized or if you spike or not or how long the spike lasts. So um, can you tell us like some of the, the better combinations and then some of the things that are detrimental and, and you know, I've heard you talk about this about, you know, naked carbs is, is usually the, mm-hmm. the no-no, but like, can you talk about some of the others? Yeah. So no naked carbs is just the simple rule of eating carbohydrates on their own. You're probably going to have a higher glucose spike than if you paired it with some protein or some fat. Um, so a lot of people will make this mistake like in the mornings. Um, they'll have like juice before they've eaten anything or they'll have like a fruit on an empty stomach and they'll have a much higher glucose response than if they were going to like eat some eggs first and then have that banana. And even just, you know, pairing it um, is important with the no naked carbs, but even just the order of what you eat it in. If you're having a banana and eggs for breakfast, if you eat the eggs first and then the banana, you will have a lower glucose response than if you eat like eggs and banana together, like like mix and match. And so if you have some proteins and fat in your system, it's going to help blunt that glucose response. Um, this can be taken too far in the opposite direction. I also often see, um, like double and triple glucose spikes. Like, so your glucose will go up to 150, you'll come back down and then it'll go back up to 150 and come back down. And it's doing this oscillating response for several hours. Um, I usually see that in response to large portion sizes of carbs and fat. So this is what we don't want to do. You know, this would be things like pizza, um, fried foods, creamy pastas, like things that are high starch and high fat. And the fat in the meal is causing delayed digestion, which is normally good for blunting that glucose response a little bit, but too much, especially with refined carbohydrates and starches, um, can cause that glucose to be released in bouts afterwards. So that causes the body to continue to process that meal for a long time. So I see this mistake um, often is when people are trying to combine like a refined carbohydrate with fat or protein, it can have the opposite effect of what we're trying to talk about with no naked carbs. So no naked carbs is specifically like with whole foods is where that actually works. Um, other things that blunt glucose response um, with food, you know, working out before a meal, uh, like a personal example, I love still cut oatmeal. It's just a food I genuinely enjoy. And the first time I ever wore a CGM, I tried it and it went up to like 130. It was like an appropriate response, but I was still like, eh, I wonder if I can get that lower. And now if I do like I do fasted exercise in the morning, if I do weight training in the morning and then I have the still cut oatmeal, it only increases about like five or 10 points. So it's almost negligible. And so now I always have like my still cut oatmeal with my eggs and my nuts after a weight training session. But if I don't do any exercise that morning, I'm, I'm not going to have that oatmeal. I'm going to substitute it maybe for like eggs and avocado and berries, a lower total total carbohydrate meal. So I think titrating your carbohydrate intake in relation to your exercise can be something that's useful for people to think about. Um, And then even just going on a postprandial walk. So you have a big meal, going on a walk for 20 minutes afterwards can make a big impact. And even um, there's new research that just came out about people using a standing desk right after a meal. So just standing for 30 minutes to an hour after your meal can help reduce that glucose impact. So these are things just like, you know, keeping your body moving that are really easy for a lot of people to do that can help um, reduce negative glycemic responses. Excellent. Um, I'm going to shift gears and, and talk about something that's very relevant right now as far as 
um, people with metabolic dysfunction, obesity, and then high glucose levels. We're recording this podcast during the COVID pandemic. And uh, what are your the research that you've seen in regards to negative outcomes with poor metabolic health and increased glucose levels? Yeah, um, the link is pretty strong. There's a lot of research now that has come out on this. Um, I always tell everyone that now is the time to get metabolically healthy. Like what you're doing right now can really impact your risk for getting COVID or having worse outcomes. So there was this study that was done in March, I think, um, on people in Wuhan. And it, they had a lot of people they measured. I think it was like over 7,000 people. And some of them had diabetes and some of them didn't. But the overall outcome was that those who had high glucose levels, independent of diabetes or not, if you had hyperglycemia, you required more medical interventions. So I think, you know, more procedures, drugs, ventilation, um, had multiple organ injury and higher mortality in the end of it. So hyperglycemia was an independent risk factor for having worse outcomes for COVID-19. So in general, we know that there is a strong link between immune system and hyperglycemia. Um, you know, if you worked in a hospital, like something that was very common for me is I was always getting consults from the surgical team for somebody who, you know, maybe they need to get like a knee replacement, but their A1C, you know, is what they're measuring is 10, 14%, something really high, and they won't operate unless we can get the glucose values down because it's too high of a risk for infection. So we've always known that there's this super strong link between um, our immune system and glucose levels. It's just now that we know it's also specifically related to the current pandemic. Um, so it's not necessarily novel news, but now we have very strong evidence that it's also relevant here as well. So. I don't want to scare people who have diabetes or hyperglycemia during this time because there are small things you can do right now that can impact your glucose right away. You know, just monitoring what you're eating, um, cutting out the liquid sugars is like the one thing that's like the, you know, the one thing if you do anything, don't ever consume liquid form of sugar because I guarantee you that's going to give you a huge glucose spike. Um, moving more. We so you can do simple things. Sponsor. <laughs> it's so bad yeah and related to that like one thing i guess that was a surprise for me when you were asking is is oat milk um i don't know if you guys have tried oat milk with your cgm it's like oh man uh, did you say you have yeah i gotta tell you you know i gotta tell you when we were on the carnivore diet philip's gonna kill me but i uh one time i went with my wife to get coffee and she brought it back and you know, I was like sipping away well, we were supposed to be on this hardcore diet and I was like whoa uh this thing tastes good what's in here and she's like oat milk and my uh glucose went rocket high because it hadn't been you know hadn't been responded to anything like that in a long time so I got right. it <laughs> yeah yeah and like and in your circumstance yeah if you've gone a long time without carbohydrates and you suddenly introduce especially like a more refined carbohydrate you're gonna have an exacerbated response too because your insulin levels are super low if you're not incorporating any carbs and then your body basically like over responds and doesn't know how to process that so yours is probably even more amplified but it's a pretty much golden you know rule of thumb that everyone's gonna have a massive glucose spike from oat milk and i don't know how it's become like uh, targeted as a generally healthy food i always see like friends and family drinking oat milk and they think they're doing they think they're making a better choice it's just like a one thing that bothers me i guess is like it's basically soda it's basically sugar it's just you know refined glucose molecules at that point um so that was just like a pet peeve yeah <laughs> hey the cgm doesn't lie <laughs> yeah, it doesn't lie yeah <laughs> Well, can't cheat the CGM. <laughs> no kidding. <That's> true. <laughs> well, Kara, I mean, we we can we can obviously talk to you forever. We want to respect your time, so just we'll give you a wrap up question that um, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone's going to get as well. And it's just, you know, what are you doing personally to achieve your peak health? What's in your formula? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm spending a lot of time, you know, speaking of stress, really paying attention um, to managing stress as well. You know, I'm helping start and run a startup. And so you work a lot and there's a lot of stress, but I'm trying to be very intentional about um, my psychological health just as much as, you know, things like weight training, things like moving throughout the day and things like eating really high quality food. So I have a good morning routine now where I'm spending a lot of time in the morning outside, uh, in the grass, early sunlight, journaling, reflecting, and just paying attention to my mood as much as possible. And then related to the diet aspect, I'm doing um, some like intermittent, I call it intermittent keto instead of cyclical keto because I think cyclical keto can be kind of confusing, but I'm doing stretches. You know, the new thing I'm trying is one to two weeks of like a strict keto diet. And then I'm doing about a month and a half, two months of just like generally low carb, whole food, eating within an eight, six to eight hour window during early morning hours, um, early daytime hours. And occasionally then cycling that because I think that really maybe that's the heart at metabolic flexibility and mitochondrial health, preventing disease, keeping my insulin low, but also giving my body variety of foods. So I, I think if we do long term one thing, um, that's not necessarily what we are physiologically built for. So I'm trying to as close as possible replicate ancestral health and keep it as, as natural and normal as possible. So those are just some things I guess I'm doing right now. The list could go on and on of my daily routine and ritual, but. Sure. No, those are helpful. Amazing. Well, I mean, I just like to thank you and I mean, Philip and Red jump in, but this was incredibly insightful. And uh, I mean, my mind is spinning. I'm ready to, to get plugged into the, the data here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark's up in um, Canada. Do you know of a way that we'd be able to, to get a CGM to our boy up in Canada so we can help him uh, get his metabolic health in check? Yeah, absolutely. Be happy to help you guys out. CGMs have no boundaries. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate your time. Thanks for filling my um, wacky questions, but I think we learned a lot on this podcast. And I think that for the layperson, you know, that's never had the CGM, I think that's just been eye opening. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. It's been eye opening for us, and I've really enjoyed uh, working with you as a nutritionist and going back and forth. It's been really helpful. And uh, even as a physician, there's lots of things that we don't really know about this because we're not trained in it classically. So you've helped uh, further my knowledge base along and really kind of uh, leveled me up in, in this uh, in this area of knowledge. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, you're so welcome. It was fun. It's always exciting to talk to people who are doing um, similar things to just help people in a meaningful way. So I'm happy to have connected. All right. Yeah, well, I want to let me just say, I, I can't be the first probably to say this, but that's the future. The CGM is definitely the future. And I feel like we are very lucky to have someone like Kara to help us out. And I mean, I think that this is, when you're talking about uh, not sick care, but well care, it's really hard to get patients to see what they're doing now causes problems later. Yeah, absolutely. The whole team at NutriSense have uh, been very, very, nothing but impressed and been very pleased with that app. The app's actually very intuitive, very easy to use. It's fun to use. And uh, it's, yeah, the ultimate truth teller, as uh, Rhett was saying, it'll it'll open your eyes to whatever you're, what you thought was healthy or what you thought was like okay to eat. Like she said, everybody's individual yeah. and everybody responds to different uh, ingredients and nutrients differently. Well, that's what I feel like is a core, like a core theme that's developing is just this this push and obviously everything we're doing at Thrive is is linked to this, but it seems so blatantly obvious right now about just personalized everything, right? You know, from, yes. from this in terms yeah. of monitoring the foods, like precision it, medicine. Yeah. That's what it is. It seems so obvious though. Like what, how, why did it take, why is it taking so long? To get well, to I don't know. The technology has to catch up, but I'll tell you, that's the point too. It's like, we can even look at what happens 90% of the time, but still we need to look at what happens in you. Yeah. Totally. That being said, Mark, we were not joking about getting you a CGM. Are you, worried 
No, <laughs> I, I'm more worried. I'm going downstairs soon to go check the sugar content in our almond milk. That's what I'm going to do. That I'm legit worried. It's not going to be good, especially yeah. if you get like a vanilla flavoring or whatever. No, it, it's all unsweetened. I can guarantee that. But or uh, yeah, no sweeteners added. But that obviously doesn't mean much. So I'm a bit terrified. But yeah, I definitely want to try it because I mean, I've I've gone down the route in the past, as you guys know, with biome and, and doing the gut microbiome testing of actually have my superfoods and uh, foods avoid right on the fridge right now. So, you know, I'm just trying to find out what's going on in, in my body. So definitely down to do that. And I, you know, the other thing with her or this conversation, like, I loved how like she kind of just maybe some of the other guests were, were talking about this too like especially mc but just like back to the basics like mm -hmm. you know if you if you go to her peak health right it's okay get outside she does some journaling she reflects she tries to keep her mood in a in a good state you know she's 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 exercising moving around like even a brisk walk like it doesn't have to be anything super complicated but you know you've, you've gotta you've gotta have that that recipe or the mix, right? Or be at least conscious of the things that uh, we can do. Yeah, that ancestral living. I love that she used that term. Uh, for those of yeah. you that don't know about Thrive, that's what we were about. Half ancestral living practices and half science, technology, and all the cool biohacking. So, but at the very basics is ancestral living and and some of the things that she's uh, implementing in her own peak health quest. Yeah, and I um, need to take time in this post chat to make sure I don't get or get out of the doghouse. Uh, Sarah, if you're listening, my wife is a very intelligent dietitian and got a four point <laughs> in school, so <laughs> she's brilliant. Yeah. You just you don't know what we don't know. We're we're all we're still learning because every time we try something different, and the biggest thing that I that I've noticed with this CGM is the biggest derailer of your glucose um, is going out to eat because you have no control over the ingredients that are being put in your food. And you can even go somewhere where you think, well, I'm making healthy choices. I'm going to order something that's healthy. And then boom, you look at your data and it's just way out of whack. Whereas when um, my wife, Katie, and I are cooking at home, we control all the ingredients and it's always a very predictable uh, data set after. I feel that's got to be a big one for a lot of people right now, just with COVID. I mean, I, I have a, a good friend that I remember, I, you know, I hadn't seen him for, for months and then ran into him like, whoa, I mean, he must have lost 20 plus pounds. And like, so what, like, are you on some sort of wild exercise regime or something? He's like, no, I just haven't been going to any restaurants, obviously. I'm like, holy smokes. So it's it's so true right you so, see how big of a change people yeah. yeah when you cut that out yeah and you know what i'd say too i think that even in this group right here what i've learned personally is no one is immune to peak health and and pushing themselves a little further and extending their knowledge i think that's what we're doing on this journey right as we go through this journey of discovery that sticking this device in my arm i learned that you know there's some changes that i need to make yeah for sure for sure. Well, that was, excuse me, that was another good one. I'm, I'm looking for, we've got a couple more lined up for this series, but there's definitely some clear themes developing and little nuances here and there, depending on, on who's uh, talking about the subject. But I mean, she, she really nailed it for me when she said in her definition of, of what longevity was, is just unnecessary suffering. I mean, that really kicked me back in my chair. So I'm, I'm excited to hear the, uh, responses for from the other guests yeah there's this overarching theme of mental fitness and yeah that seems to be the common thread thus far and i think it'll continue to be but i know you're probably jumping around in your chair trying to hold yourself uh, from getting too excited when she said she starts journaling every day so oh, totally. it's, it's, it's your big thing so totally. do i have a podcast for you <laughs> let's call it spade a spade man mental fitness is the most important thing we've talked about in any of these podcasts oh yeah it's the most un underrated thing and it's a thing that needs to be brought to the masses and that's what we're going to do and uh we're glad to have you on the team mark and spearheading that because we that as a team has recognized that that is an important thing. And we're demonstrating that with the guests that we're picking and they're, they're just talking about mental fitness unprompted. So it's definitely, if you're going to be healthy and live yeah. a, a long life, that's 
something total new health to focus on got it got to be all the elements so mark okay, i'm gonna close you. with this we're looking forward to seeing your data 24 <laughs> hours a day uh i'm not i'm not releasing that i'm working directly with kara <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have admin privileges yeah exactly and uh, we're, we see we're, everything where's that food journal <laughs> mr journal where's the, where's the food journal no more muffins bro <laughs> yeah no kidding all right guys to the next one all right, all right. catch you later peace All right, you made it to the end. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to tune into the next episode, which will be with Dr. Matt Dawson, a physician and the founder and CEO of a genomics-based personalized medicine company called Wild Health. Of course, if you're enjoying the show, please drop us a review wherever you are listening. Thanks as always, and we'll see you next time.